Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. The post-pandemic labor market features serious rethinks of the role of work in people's lives, and it's created one of the deepest employment crunches in memory. Too many jobs, not enough people to do them. So what does that mean, and is this an opportunity for the poor to get better work more stability and greater opportunities. We're going to talk with the authors of a book who've deeply explored the subject next on Detroit Today, right after the news from NPR. Welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm really glad you've decided to join us today. Before we get started, I want to make sure to thank all of the people who contributed to our spring on-air fundraiser, helping us to get closer to our goal. It really does mean a lot to the relationship that we have here at WDET with the community. This is a community-supported service, and it is your contributions that keep it going. So uh, great work for everybody who uh, who picked up the phone or went went to the website or uh, went to the mobile app and became a part of the WDET community over the last week or so. I want to start today with a little tale about a sign that I've been passing for more than a year in northwest Detroit. It's at a fast food restaurant, and it just has three words on it. We hire in people. I'm not sure whether... They mean we hiring, comma, people, as in, hey, people, come apply because we've got jobs. Or if they're just saying, we hiring people. But it's been up for a long time. And I think it's a sign of the times. You see places like Starbucks and Target and McDonald's and Subway doing everything they can to get more people to come work with them. They're increasing minimum wages and adding better, broader benefits. And all of that means that if you're part of the working class, the economy looks pretty good right now. This trend has become more stable. Labor markets have been hot for some time now. It's been true for us mostly since the pandemic struck. And now incomes are increasing faster for poorer workers than they are for wealthier ones, something we've wanted to happen in the economy for a long time, but has been really elusive. We often run consistently tight labor markets where more employment options are offered to fewer available workers during times of crisis. Think of what happened in the country during World War II and the period following. And now we've got this new tight labor market on the heels of the COVID-19 pandemic. But what do these tighter labor markets really mean for us? Do they always yield better working conditions and higher pay for workers? Why are tight labor markets somewhat rare in American history? And what would it mean to keep unemployment low and provide a surplus of jobs to workers most of the time? What are the consequences for the health of companies and especially for people who are trying to climb the economic ladder. That last question, think about how important that is here in the city of Detroit, where we really struggle with the depths of poverty that people experience and the intractability of that poverty, how hard it is to create sustaining opportunities for people to move up. Professors Catherine Newman and Elizabeth S. Jacobs are two scholars who have been seeking answers to all of these questions. They're the authors of a new book titled Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor. And in it, they explore the ins and outs of what it means when American jobs are larger in number than the number of Americans in the workforce 
itself. Professor Newman, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having us. And Elizabeth Jacobs, welcome to Detroit Today as well. Thanks so much for having us. It's great to be here. So I want to start with uh, some some pretty simple definitions. Uh, tight labor market. Uh, what does that mean beyond maintaining a low unemployment rate? Uh, Professor Newman, I'll start with you. Well, it is principally about maintaining a, a low unemployment rate, but there are degrees of tightness. Uh, we find that the most important effects only happen when unemployment goes below 4.5%. We are well below that now, but not every tight labor market goes down as low as we're seeing it now or stays as long as it has uh, for the moment. So there are degrees of tightness and degrees of duration. Uh, the deeper the, the uh, impact on unemployment and the longer the duration, the more the positive effects we talk about emerge and stick. And how do we do that? How do we keep unemployment low and low-wage workers getting higher pay. As I said in the open, some of what's going on right now is about the pandemic and its effect on the economy and the labor market. But what role should Congress and the Biden administration and the Federal Reserve be playing in, as you say, <clears throat> making these things making these things stick? Well, let me give a, take a crack at that and then turn it to Elizabeth. The first thing I want to say is this is not really about the pandemic. We had a 50-year low of unemployment in 2019 mm -hmm. when we'd never heard of COVID. So this is a dynamic that has more to do with the shortage of workers, which develops for a number of reasons. One is that we had very low birth rates about 20 years ago, starting 20 years ago, and they have not reversed. So we have fewer young people coming into the labor market. Second, for all kinds of reasons, we slammed the door on immigration, which is usually a source of additional workers. Third, there's some things that are pandemic-related, although they have preceded the pandemic as well, that we don't completely understand. Prime-age men in their 50s, late 50s, are dropping out of the labor market faster than they used to. We don't completely understand why that's the case. But when you put all those things together with an economy that's growing – you have a shortage of workers relative to the number of jobs that are available, and that's what creates a tight labor market. Mm. There are things government can do or, more important, shouldn't do if we wanted to sustain this. The Federal Reserve has been raising interest rates pretty, pretty, at a pretty good clip lately. Um, it doesn't seem to be having much of an effect on unemployment, but that is part of the intention is to drive unemployment up to blunt the demands for higher wages that develop when there's a shortage of workers. Elizabeth, your thoughts? Um, I would just add on to that in terms of demographic trends, the aging of the workforce as well. So we've both had a declining birth, birth rate and we've had an aging workforce because the baby boom cohort is aging out of prime age working age and closer towards retirement. Um, many of that cohort have, have started retiring and that puts exit pressure, right? So if you are coming, people coming in and you have a lot of workers leaving. So there are those basic demographic factors on both sides that matter. And then the one other thing that I would note in terms of government policy, Catherine's point about the options available to government at any point, but particularly when you're trying to balance price stability and full employment, which is the Fed's mandate. Obviously, they've been making incremental changes to interest rates. But the other thing that the federal government did during the pandemic was a massive amount of support for workers. And we really saw that actually matter. It's part of why we had a historic shock and the labor market crashed during the pandemic. But that lasted for a very short period of time. To Catherine's point, we saw a very tight labor market beforehand and we knew um, how to, or we've learned that we do know how to actually protect some of what can happen when things fall apart and give people some momentum coming back into a tough spot. So I think there are a couple lessons there in terms of what government can do, one of which um, is, is taking seriously the full employment piece. And I'm sure we can talk more about what it means to actually be employed um, and be moving up over mm -hmm. time. But the other is actually protective measures to make sure that once people get some traction, they're actually continuing to actually be able to move up. They have some economic security that protects against a buffer, even something as strong as the economy essentially slamming to a screeching stop. 
we can actually do something about that that helps families hold on to that momentum. And I think there are lessons there for what we can do going forward as well. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Elizabeth, I want to have you talk a little more about the effects of all of these dynamics and this, quote, tight labor market on uh, people who are, are trying to move up, people who need more opportunity uh, than they have. Uh, what are we? What are we seeing? And uh, what do we do to to push the momentum even even more more uh, dramatically forward uh, with regard to people being able to move up the economic ladder? Sure. So I'll start um, with kind of the big picture from some of the numbers in the book, and then I'll turn it over to Catherine to talk about our field work, because one of the things that I really love about this book is that it's got both. It's got numbers and and stories and real people in it, which um, which makes, I think, the, the wonky economic numbers sometimes feel um, like they come to life a little bit more. Mm-hmm. So in terms of the numbers, um, numbers let us look back in history so we can look over the course of the ups and downs of the labor market. And we can see that when the unemployment rate, as Catherine noted earlier, gets below 4.5% and stays there for about a year, if not longer, um, we start to see traction for people who have historically been out of work. We see employment rates start to tick up. We see earnings start to tick up. We see hours start to tick up, all of which add up to higher family incomes. And we see those things endure across the business cycle. So even once things start to kind of erode, because, um, you know, so far in history, what comes up must come down. We'll see with this labor market. I think the Fed is wondering, (laughs) will it ever come down? Um, But what goes up must come down. And we see people who are able to get some traction, um, including these folks who have been very much on on the margins. We see that that traction stick. um, And we see them actually starting to climb in ways that aren't easy to do um, and don't really happen, even in tight labor markets where the unemployment rate isn't so dramatically low. So right now, the country is at about um, 3.6%. I know things are a little bit different in Detroit. The unemployment rate for the city is a little bit higher, but it's below three. It's at 3.2% or it was as of, of December in the Detroit area. And so even in any region that's been historically quite quite troubled, the opportunities and, and the numbers that we see suggest that there are folks who are able to find work stay at work and move up at work in ways that have historically been very difficult to see. So I'll turn it over to Catherine. She can talk a little bit more about um, who I'm talking about and what we're seeing on the ground. Yeah. Catherine, go ahead. Yeah. So the first thing we see is that employers have to seek other sources of workers than the ones they're used to. And they start calling on people they never would have considered before, people who've been on the margins for most of their adult lives. This would include often single mothers, people who've been out of the labor force for a long time, people who are coming out of the prison system, all of those people who would have been at the very back of the line in terms of desirability suddenly become the people that uh, employers are looking for. So they have to open their doors to people that they used to show a cold shoulder to. The second thing that happens is that because those people probably don't have the experience and skills that employers were looking for at the outset, They have to invest a lot more in training. They have to enable those new entrants to become the skilled workers that they need. And so they start to invest in education. They invest in training. They provide a pathway to licenses that didn't exist before and they would have been able to expect coming in the front door. And all that investment turns those marginal workers into people with skill that can either move up inside those companies or they can find another employer who will pay them better for the new skills that they have. Employers do tend to create those job ladders internally because it's so hard for them to find new workers. So they want to reward the people they've got so that they don't lose them. This is like a great American mobility machine. It enables people at the very bottom to start looking forward to a college education, for example. McDonald's never used to pay for college tuition. The fight for 15, that fight's over, and the workers won. Health insurance, paid vacation, these are the kinds of benefits that absolutely were invisible or just didn't exist in the entry-level labor market, especially in places like Target or McDonald's, some of the places you mentioned. So you have better benefits, better wages, especially at the bottom, and you have an investment in training that if it can be sustained – will enable people to move up off the floor of the entry level up higher. 
the more experience they have and the more steady that experience is, the better protected they are against a downturn if it happens because now they're more valuable. They embody more skill that's worth being paid for. So these are all the amazing things that happen during very tight labor markets to the people who have usually been absolutely the last in line for any of these kinds of positive turns. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation about the labor market and the opportunities that exist, especially for those at the lower end of the economic ladder in this uh, labor market. We're going to get going on the phones and on social as well. We're going to start with Kevin in Livonia when we get back. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones if you want to join him. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in our conversation that way. There we are. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Bringing you news that matters. Stories that impact your life. Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, your host, and I'm really glad you've joined. We're talking today about the labor market uh, right now, how tight that labor market is and the opportunities it's creating for people who have had a hard time in the past uh, being a part of the labor market, but especially people who have a hard time moving up economically, uh, people who are often shut out of the labor market. Uh, our guests are Professor Catherine Newman. She is a University of Massachusetts System Chancellor for Academic Programs and a Senior Vice President for Economic Development and a Sociology Professor at UMass Amherst. Uh, she is the co-author of a book titled Moving the Needle, What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor. Also with us is her co-author, Elizabeth Jacobs, who is a senior fellow at the Urban Institute's Center on Labor, Human Services, and Population. We want to hear from you as well during this conversation. Call and tell us what your experiences are uh, with this current labor market. Are you somebody who has found opportunities that you hadn't found uh, before? Are you able to get access to employment that might have eluded you a few years ago. Um, give us a sense of uh, how you're finding the work. Uh, are employers uh, more accommodating of workers' needs? Are they, uh, because they're so desperate for workers, are they kind of bending policies or rules that they might have had in place in order to make it easier for you to work with them? 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will include you that way. Let's start today with Kevin in Livonia. Kevin, welcome to the show. Good morning, Detroit. Hey. I'd love to say that I appreciate everybody acknowledging that we have workers out there that are not employed uh, when somebody comes out of the system, that's one of my thoughts. I had a, a discussion with my sister the other morning about how do we deal with all these folks that were incarcerated, uh, where it's hard for them to find work. You know, the federal government should be supporting a program of some sorts that, you know, we're taking them off of the, we pay for their their stay at, whether it's prison or jail. Um, so, there's funds there that can be allocated towards putting them to work in the restaurant business. There is such a shortage right now. Um, I see it. Everybody sees it. You mm -hmm. go to a restaurant, half the tables are empty, but it's an hour wait because there's no wait staff. Mm -hmm. uh, training them and incentivizing it is a big term that I love using where you make it, if they work there a year and they, they do well, you know, they Something comes off their record, something that makes it worth their time. And then nobody really wants to, in their late 20s, early 30s, or early 40s, or even late 40s, want to work at a McDonald's or an Outback Steakhouse. But gosh darn it, you know, you get in there and you do your job and you see the light at the end of the tunnel, you know it's heading in the right direction. All of a sudden, 
you know, it's right in front of us. The, yeah. the, you're filling that void in the labor market, and you're giving people a reason to get up, do their jobs, and get them back in the system of making money instead of costing us money. Sure. Yeah, Kevin, that. Kevin, really appreciate the call and and the observations. Uh, I, I want to start with just a, a look at how critical this issue is here in Southeast Michigan, in particular, and especially in the city, uh, the city of Detroit. One in three African American men in our community uh, is uh, has been in prison or in in jail, and so the issue of um, how we re-welcome uh, returning citizens to our community and get them employed. Uh, I, I would put in, in the top five of all the issues that we face here uh, in, in the city. So I want to have our guests uh, address that particular uh, issue and, and how this labor market, uh, how this labor market affects them. Uh, Professor Newman, I'll start with you. So this is really pretty good news on the whole. Um, I wouldn't say the problem is solved by any means. But in the evidence that we review and in the field work we did with many returning citizens, we see unemployment rates among them drop like a stone because they are suddenly desirable. Even people with very long prison records uh, come into the labor force and employers are willing to give them a chance. And that's not because they've suddenly had a change of heart. It's because they don't have any other alternatives. But what's really important is that those doors do open. And once those returning citizens enter them, if they do do a good job, they do see upward mobility and higher wages. It almost never happens outside of extremely tight labor markets. So I think this is an extraordinarily important time, not only to see that happen, but to reexamine some of the policies that make it harder for the magic of tight labor markets to work for returning citizens. So, for example, there are restrictions on whether or not people with felony records can work on federally funded uh, projects, mm -hmm. even construction projects. We ought to take those regulations out. Uh, we should do everything possible to encourage people with prison records to come back into the labor force. I guess the point I'm trying to make is that actually happens at a much higher degree when labor markets are tight than any other time. We should be considering the removal of those regulations so that even when labor markets relax, that trajectory can be maintained. But it is extraordinary how, um, how robust that recovery can be for returning prisoners under these extremely tight labor market conditions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Elizabeth? Um, I would just add to that that there are a number of additional um, things that have happened recently in terms of proposals for what we could do to build on what Catherine's talking about. And so there's still obviously plenty in place that gets in the way of, of hiring people who've had challenging pasts. Um, but there are proposals, for example, in New York Slate, they have a, a what's called a clean slate bill, and there are a number of other acts like this that propose clearing folks' criminal records or minimizing how much a criminal history is kind of allowed to show up when somebody has served their time and is, is back in the labor market and looking to re-engage with society after they've um, they've served their time. And I think there's something really fundamentally important there that, um, you know, goes it goes beyond this question of labor markets and I think gets to a question of why we have these kinds of barriers in place in the first place and how we think about restorative justice, whether we actually think that the prison system is doing doing its job or whether it's just kind of holding on to people. Um, and it seems like there's a real reckoning that's forced when you have a labor market that's actually creating the demand for more workers. And we have to really look at, at what values we've built our justice system around and our, our sort of um, relationship between employment systems and justice systems. So you have things like the clean slate work um, as well as, as others that are looking to really take seriously this idea that if somebody has served their time, um, there's no reason to allow that to continue to hang over them. Um, and the other thing I'd say just in terms of a specific example is occupational licensing um, comes up a fair bit in conversations about sort of quasi low hanging fruit that we might be able to do something about to create more opportunity. There are many professions and it varies dramatically across states, but where folks need to get a license in order to do the work. And that's historically been a way of kind of protecting insiders in a given profession and making sure that folks are actually appropriately trained and skilled to do to do the work. So something like a truck driver um, or even a barber or a nail salon tech, there is all kinds of training that you need to pass an exam and have a 
license in order to be able to practice. In many states, um, and Florida is a, a great example of one that has very strict occupational li licensing regulations on folks with criminal records, regardless of whether they've served their time, they're done with parole, um, kind of they're fully through the system, um, but they still are forbidden from getting certain licenses. Um, those things could certainly be loosened in order to open opportunity. Um, to folks who are barred from the labor market, and particularly some of these um, jobs that may start with lower wages, but with additional training, actually allow people to move to move up in really important ways. So those are a few a few examples of ways that we might continue to build on the momentum that's in place now to kind of unravel some of the whether they're intentional or unintentional consequences um, of how we've continued to bar people. Um, and now see that we need them. And so we're willing to actually think more creatively. Um, and those changes could be durable if we if we decide to hold on to them kind of regardless of what the labor market might mm -hmm. look like. Again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. Call and tell us about your experiences with the current labor market, your observations about the labor market and how it uh, in particular affects uh, people who need more economic opportunity, who need more job stability, better wages, more benefits. Uh, what are you seeing uh, in terms of one of the tightest labor markets uh, in, in memory? You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the show that way. Ed on Twitter has a specific question. He says, do you think the past and current administration's policies on immigration have a large effect on the labor shortage for entry-level jobs? Really interesting question. Uh, Elizabeth Jacobs, I'll go to you first this time. I think they do in the labor market that we're able to see clearly in the data, um, which is important because it's indicative of something that's happening more broadly. But I think it's really hard to know because of so much of what the past and present administration's policies um, have done in terms of putting a lot of underground labor even further underground. Um, and so that's a way of, of saying but sort of yes and no at the same time. The yes, and what we know for sure, is that when you have fewer workers, you have more demand from employers and you see things like the benefits and wages increases that we've documented. So we know that for sure. I think that's pretty undeniable. How much is going on under the surface and how much of kind of the, the black market or the off the table market has continued to grow as it's become even more precarious to be an undocumented worker in this country. I think that that's less clear. Um, but we do know that when you've got less immigration, when you've got less folks coming in, um, willing and able to work, you have a tighter labor market because you have you have fewer workers in place. Um, so whether you agree with that, and I, I personally, speaking as myself, not even as, as looking at the labor market picture, but thinking more broadly about how we ought to handle our borders, um, and how how we had to open our doors. I think there are all kinds of questions we could we could have there. But the basic basic dynamics of what it means for formal labor markets, for sure, um, is fewer workers, and therefore um, you know uh, employees employers under some pressure to actually expand um, their their offerings to the workers that they have available to them. Mm -hmm. Catherine, do you want to jump in there and add anything? No, I think you've taken care of it. <laughs> okay. okay. Uh, also, Michael on Twitter says, uh, anecdotally, I know several people with great education and experience who were laid off by big companies and can't find jobs, people in their 40s and 50s. Some have stopped looking for jobs. Is this something that people track? Types of people who aren't being hired in, uh, in, this, in this labor market? Uh, Professor Newman, I'll start with you this time. Yes, well, no labor market is ever 100% employed. Um, even in very tight labor markets, you still have people moving around. But the duration of unemployment tends to drop like a stone when you've got such an imbalance. Um, so while there are some people who might find it hard to find work in general, most people are reemployed very quickly. What we are seeing is that some age groups, uh, older men, are dropping out of the labor market in a durable way. And we don't completely understand that because it's not happening to women and there may be a relationship there. It may be that women are working longer and their partners are able to kick back from the labor market. But fundamentally, most people are able to find work somewhere because labor markets are so tight. But that doesn't mean they will always find exactly the job they're looking for. What we look for, what we measure, is the duration of unemployment, 
when people do uh, lose their jobs, and it tends to get shorter and shorter as they move into new jobs fairly quickly. So there's been a lot of attention, for example, to tech layoffs lately, because that's a very high-skilled population, Mm -hmm. and because it seems to be a wave uh, coursing through most of the high-tech companies. But those workers find new jobs fairly quickly, so we don't see them on the unemployment lines uh, for very long. Yeah. um, Elizabeth Jacobs, do you have anything to add there? Um, I think the one thing that I would add that um, that is just an additional point to build on what Catherine has said is that the labor force participation rate, which is different from the unemployment rate, right? Just like a little asterisk, um, super wonk moment for folks who <laughs> don't follow their unemployment statistics super carefully. The unemployment rate is how many folks are in the labor market looking looking for work, um, out of work, but looking for work. The labor force participation rate takes into account sort of everyone who's out there engaged in some way. So working, not working, looking for work, um, sorry, working, looking for work, the percentage of the population who's who's doing that, the percentage of the working age population who are out there looking for work is back up to about 81.5%, which is the highest that it's been in quite some time, which suggests to me, to Catherine's point, that you may still have and will always have churn. We want to have churn, right? Churn recognizes that sometimes folks aren't in quite the best job for them and allows them to find a new job. In an optimal state, the only unemployment would be that, right? Would be folks kind of playing musical chairs, looking for, um, I guess musical chairs is the wrong game analogy, but looking for looking for a great job. But the labor force participation rate, we ideally want to see that as high as, as it can go. I think there's a kind of a max value that's pretty darn high. Um, and there's been a fair bit of concern that it's been ticking down over time, particularly as Catherine has said for older men. But we see that going up as well, which is a real sign of health. And in fact, to the last wonky point on the actual numbers, the increase in the unemployment rate um, between um, the last the last two months, the unemployment rate did tick up um, a couple decimal points from very, very low, 3.6 to 3.8. But it's entirely plausible, and I think it's actually quite likely, that where that increase came from was actually more folks coming off of the margins um, because there's so much opportunity right now. So you have fake folks go- going from being not at all participating in the labor market, just sitting fully on the sidelines, to jumping in because there's opportunity there and looking. Um, and so that doesn't speak directly to a laid off tech worker, um, but they're going to show up in the data too as folks who are who are looking for new work, um, as are some of these folks who've come off the sidelines entirely. Um, so that's that would be my my one add that one one person or even a sector's worth of person people who are in the midst of some churn uh, doesn't necessarily reflect um, a weakening labor market at all. It may just be kind of a readjustment, um, and folks are going to find find new jobs relatively quickly. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take another quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue this conversation about the labor market and opportunity. I also want to continue to hear from you on the phones and on social. 313-577-1019 is the number here. Uh, Echo and Westland, we will get to you next. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the conversation that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson, and I'm glad you've joined us. Our guests are Professor Catherine S. Newman and Elizabeth S. Jacobs. They are co authors of a new book titled Moving the Needle What Tight Labor Markets Do for the Poor. That's what we're talking about the labor market that we have right now and what opportunities exist given the desperation that many businesses have for workers for folks who often find themselves locked out of the labor market or locked out of important opportunities to move up uh, through through work. We want to hear from you, as always, on the phones. 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you in the show that way. Before we go back to listeners, I want to raise a couple of points that 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 maybe push at uh, some of the ideas that that you guys put forward in this book. The first one is that 
a, a lot of people have been saying that fewer workers available is bad for business because now there's less competition for <laughs> a lot of jobs. And if you are someone who's trying to operate a business, of course, uh, you want that competition for for employment. Why why is that not the way to be thinking of of, of things, uh, Professor Newman? I'll start with you. Well, it's not entirely wrong, but the question is whose ox is gored. <laughs> if we're thinking about what's good for workers, um, less competition means more um, clout in the hands of workers. And that's why we see wages rising and we see investments from employers in the human capital of workers. It does make things harder for employers. That is true. Um, and it would be lovely if that wasn't necessary in order to see these advantages accrue to workers. But it is in the nature of a capitalist economy that that's the way things work. So, um, you know, I think it is problematic for employers and they have to scramble a bit more. Uh, and we can certainly see on occasion, binds develop because there is insufficient supply of workers. It takes longer to get certain services to be taken care of. You might not find that restaurant open. There can be such severe binds that you see a kind of glitch in the, the production line. But overall, I would say that tight labor markets are very good for workers, and the pressure they place on employers is productive if what we're trying to do, which is something we care about a lot as authors, is solve the problem of poverty, solve the problem of unemployment in places like Detroit. Uh, the longer this goes on, the more people will enter the labor market, the more people who will have durable histories in the labor market, which will serve them well. If there is a downturn, they will be more valuable. They will spend less time on unemployment. And to be honest, if we're talking about what this costs the country as opposed to employers per se, we will see that workers need fewer of the social benefit programs we provide for people who are unemployed because there are fewer of them who are unemployed. And so the cost to the rest of society for maintaining uh, benefits like SSI or TANF or unemployment insurance go down, the costs go down because people can take care of themselves. And isn't that really what we're after in the long run, enabling people to take care of themselves through the hard work they do in the labor market and the rewards they uh, receive in the form of wages and benefits? To me, that's the way the system should work. Mm. So, uh, Elizabeth Jacobs, I'm going to ask you about another one of these points. A lot of people believe that there is a connection between these hyper-low unemployment rates and the higher prices that we're playing, that we're paying for everything, that that inflation, of course, is one of the things that that is a, a byproduct, I guess, of of this kind of labor market and economy. So, how concerned should we be about those prices having the opposite effect of raising standards of living for people who have a hard time in the in labor market? Sure, it's easier to get a job. It's easier to keep that job. But if everything costs more, doesn't that defeat the purpose? So I'm going to pull apart the question into two pieces. I think one question is how much we should care about inflation and how much price stability actually matters. And then the other question is, do we have to um, dampen what's going on in the labor market in order to solve for the problem of of inflation um, and price rising prices. So if we start with the first part of the problem, inflation is a serious problem, right? There is no question, especially for the folks that Catherine and I um, are talking about, for folks who are at the, the bottom of the economic ladder, rising prices are a big deal, um, particularly, you know, the cost of food, energy, childcare, rent, um, those even absent in inflation, the cost of living has risen faster than, than earnings, and it takes a big bite out of family budgets. Um, so I want to start by acknowledging that the problem is very real. But the question of whether the tight labor markets and rising wages are what's driving inflation is an entirely separate question that I think economists used to think that they had a pretty good sense of what the answer was. But it's increasingly clear that they don't 
know particularly well. Um, and I say this not as a macroeconomist, but as an observer of macroeconomists for quite some time and someone who spent a lot of time in a lot of rooms with macroeconomists, that I think that anyone who tries to tell you that they understand the relationship between um, wages, employment, and prices um, in the real world, right, on paper, it makes perfect sense. In the real world, it is much messier um, than, than our models would have us believe. And in particular in this moment, um, what's actually driving rising inflation is kind of a big question mark. Um, I think there's pretty clear evidence that it's not primarily wages, um, you know, pushing prices upwards. It's things like a war in Ukraine, it's supply chain bottlenecks left over from the pandemic, and it's a market structure that really allows firms to charge their customers far beyond the cost of goods because of the control they have over product markets. So that gets into a whole different set of tools than the Fed's very blunt tool for raising interest rates. Um, it doesn't mean that getting inflation under control isn't an issue. And indeed, like if we could get inflation under control and, and this is the Fed's goal, the soft landing idea is to keep keep unemployment relatively low, that would be a win-win. And I, I don't think that that's necessarily impossible. But what really distresses both myself, and I, I think I can speak for Catherine here as well, is to see how quickly the debate has turned to essentially pitting low wages, or I'm sorry, rising wages and low unemployment against price stability as though the only way to get to a more sustainable situation with inflation, which we've seen flatten out some, it's, we're not out of the woods, but we've certainly seen it improve some. But there are other ways to get there. The only way to get there is not, in fact, by driving interest rates up such that we kind of ca cause the economy to come crashing, crashing down and ruin what we've what we've accomplished with this very tight labor market. There are other ways that are kind of scalpels as opposed to the cudgel of, um, of raising interest rates. And our, our hope is that people will take seriously what we're able to really put in in pretty um, stark, bright terms, I should say. Um, in order to help influence that debate, some. So, so related question: How worried are you that a recession will set in and and ruin some of what we're what we're seeing? Certainly, the Fed's acts on interest rates, which which make it harder, of course, for 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 everybody threaten a recession in, in, in some people's minds. I, I wonder if the two of you can address what your fears are about recession and what effect that would have on the positive sides of this, of this labor market. Uh, Elizabeth, I'll start with you. Um, so I will say that I am moderately worried. Um, on the one hand, I am continually surprised by the fact that despite the Fed's actions, and this is the kind of ingrained I've spent, I've spent too much time maybe with the macroeconomists, I keep on thinking that things are going to turn a corner um, and the remarkable progress that we've made is, is going to evaporate and that we're going to have done that on purpose. At the same time, I think the situation is such that that hasn't happened yet. Um, and I'm deeply hopeful that the continued evidence, including what Catherine and I have, um, have put out in the book, will help make the case that there are ways to do this or ways to think about um, to think about kind of holding on to the benefits that can help us avoid coming uh, crashing down again. And then the last thing I'll say to that point is I think one of the things that we learned from the pandemic and one of the lessons that we can see um, through kind of an absence in our response to the Great Recession is that we also actually know how to handle downturns in ways that make them quick and much less painful um, than they are in the absence of government intervention. So extending unemployment benefits, extending cash to families, um, extending loans to businesses, there are all kinds of things that we're able to do and that we did relatively quickly compared to how we acted in the past during the Great Recession that can make um, that can make a downturn far less painful and allow for a much more quicker, uh, a much quicker rebound, which I think is hopeful. And what we've seen in the data is that you can turn something like pan the pandemic into what, if you're just looking at the top line employment numbers, looks like a weird blip. It's like the computers broke for a couple of months and then everything went back hmm. to, to normal, which of course is not what happened. Um, but the top line numbers really are quite remarkable. And I think the story in there is um, is that we're not we're not helpless at the face in the, the face of the whims of the labor market. We have a fair bit of control as to what happens um, and what happens to who and how. So I'll, I'll turn it back to Catherine. Yeah, Catherine, how worried are you about recession? That was a great answer. <laughs> yeah. Catherine, what, what's your what's your thinking about recession? 
Well, I think everybody is worried about it who who thinks about what the consequences could be. Uh, and it would be particularly tragic if it was an engineered recession, meaning brought on on purpose, um, because that would be just By the tragic. Fed, you mean, right. Yes. I mean, it, it's always possible. I do think the Fed is trying to stick a soft landing, but it can be very difficult to navigate that territory, and we can inadvertently crash ourselves into a recession as well. So I think there's always a risk. Um, it hasn't happened so far, and I find that quite extraordinary when you look at the pace with which the Reserve Fed has increased interest rates in the past. I think we would have seen a much sharper rise of un- in unemployment um, as a result, and we really haven't. We really haven't. So, you know, maybe we'll get lucky and it will be a, a softer landing. Uh, we certainly want to see inflation come under control because, as we've argued in the book, it is particularly damaging for people at the bottom end of the labor force. Uh, the, the price increases they face are extraordinary in food, in rent, and so on. So we certainly want to see that come under control, but hopefully not at their expense. Yeah. Uh, again, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones if you want to join the conversation. You can also go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we can include you that way. Let's go to Echo in Westland. Echo, welcome to the show. Hey, how you doing? Good, how are you? Um, can't complain. So it's kind of nice to see the power swing the other way from, you know, being so corporate to now in the workers field, especially when you were a contract worker working for say the big three. Hmm. Um, I know uh, one of the people I worked with was a quote temporary worker for 18 years before he finally had enough and went somewhere else. But uh, during this pandemic, the company I was working for got so desperate that they hired me on direct and literally overnight my um, my salary doubled hmm. and I got real health insurance that I didn't have to pay, you know, $12,000 for a deductible for and all that kind of cool stuff. And it, like I said, it literally happened overnight. Wow. So that's a huge, obviously that's a huge, huge benefit to the workers in the working class. Sure. And my job hasn't changed at all. It's just, Suddenly, I'm now a uh, a valued citizen. Hmm. Wow! Is, you know, how it was before. That's a great way to. That's a great phrase to use to describe that echo. I wonder if you can talk more about the things that look different for you in terms of financial planning and and possibility because of this. Can you talk about specifically how different the outlook, I guess, is is for you because of this change? Oh man, it uh well, um my mortgage it was uh you know, a twenty twenty year mortgage and then suddenly now I'm paying it off early and I should be done in six years. Um wow. I just just ordered a car, a brand new car for the first time in history, whereas the most expensive car I had before was around fifteen hundred bucks. <clears throat> it's just it's a complete life changer. Yeah. Echo, that's a, th- those are wonderful examples, by the way, uh, uh, and and I'm really happy for you and and your family that that this has happened and and that this is the kind of opportunity uh, that's available. I, I I don't know that I could have come up with a a better example, <laughs> Catherine and Elizabeth, but I'll give you a chance to to respond to what Echo's saying. I mean, here. Uh, you know his his reference to the auto companies is of course very important because that's still really the the lifeblood of our of our local economy and and lots and lots of people whether they work directly for the automakers or for suppliers are are affected by what they do but uh, but Catherine I'll give you first crack here yes well you know congratulations to Echo and now multiply him times millions. And you see the magic of tight labor markets. You see what they do for working class people who have not had these opportunities, who have been in more fragile condition, more insecure, more um, up and down and up and down instead of being able to depend on a solid living. Um, And this is what we want to protect. Uh, And it, it emerges when employers really don't have a choice. And that's what tight labor markets do. So bravo to Echo. We would like to see millions more not only have this experience, but sustain it. And sustaining is the issue now because Mm -hmm. we could see that fragile success pushed backwards if uh, rising interest rates cause people to be laid off and businesses to contract. And I don't think that's in anybody's interest. 
So I, all I can say is in the book, we chronicle stories very much like his, where people who never had a shot before, including people who were not welcome in the labor market at all, suddenly find themselves desirable and with opportunity for upward mobility. Right. So that is, let's just put a fine point on it. That's exactly what we're pointing to. Yeah, uh, Elizabeth Jacobs, that phrase he used about being valued, I think was just uh, so powerful. Uh, and, and the idea that there are so many people who are feeling that now and have not been able to feel that before. Yeah, I, I could not agree more and um, echo just echoing the <laughs> congratulations um, for what is really, um, it seems like a, a long overdue recognition. And um, it, it feels wrong to call it reward because it really is just actually having what what um, I think one is, one is owed when you show up at work every day um, to be able to re-recognize that way. And um, to the point of, of value, I think an interesting thing that's come out in um, kind of ongoing work around what economic mobility and economic security look like, it's not just how much you're paid um, and your benefits and your flexibility and kind of a whole suite of what we like to talk about now is kind of job quality measures that go beyond just a wage, which are incredibly important and have gotten increasing attention in no small part, I think, because of exactly the tight labor market that we've been talking about. But there also is this piece of feeling valued to feel dignity at work and to feel that other people respect what you do. Mm -hmm. And I think there is a fundamental shift um, happening and the potential for much more of it to happen where many people who were doing incredibly valuable work, work that the economy depended on, um, are actually getting the respect and recognition that they haven't for, for quite some time because that power has shifted between workers and their employers such that employers are increasingly kind of forced, um, in many cases it is being forced to recognize that they depend on workers in order yeah. to actually do what they need to do. Um, and I think that's a fundamental equilibrium shift that I would love to see become the new normal yeah. Um, yeah. rather than have this be an unusual situation that we're trying to hold on to. Yeah. Okay, uh, Professor Catherine Newman and Elizabeth Jacobs, really great to have both of you here with us for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining us on Detroit Today. Thank you for having, for having us. That's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about the new City of Detroit budget proposed by Mayor Mike Duggan on the heels of his State of the City address last week. Also, if you like our show, really get something out of listening every day, make sure to share it with your friends and all the folks you know, and also become a permanent part of the WDET community.